This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. This episode is devs, determinism, and maybe dead cats. Our guests are writer and filmmaker Alex Garland and physicist Rebecca C. Thompson. Alex Garland wrote and directed Ex Machina and adapted and directed Annihilation based on the novel by Jeff Vandermeer. He also has written several books, including The Beach and The Coma. He even wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later. I love Alex Garland's work because of the way he infuses so much cutting-edge science into his storytelling. His films are visually striking and often juxtapose lush nature with fiercely modern architecture and technology. They seek to understand complex ideas from the ethics of creating artificial intelligence to the evolutionary boundaries of human existence. It's heady stuff. His latest show is Devs, a limited series on FX and Hulu. Devs tells the story of a young software engineer investigating the secret development division of her employer, a cutting-edge tech company based in Silicon Valley, which she believes is behind the murder of her boyfriend. Watching Devs made me want to unpack some of the science behind the fiction, so I interviewed author and physicist Rebecca C. Thompson. You will hear her interview after my interview with Alex. Here's my interview with Alex Garland. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Pleasure. the STEM Read podcast. We're excited to have you here. And yeah, what we're really interested in is how science and fiction influence each other. Our audience are teachers and educators mm-hmm. and experts. So I'd like to start teachers with... Teachers as in like high school teachers? All ages. Okay. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about that. Part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what were you like as a student? The issue I had was that when I was a kid... I wasn't very adept at school, academically, not at all. And by the time I was, so there's a bunch of exams you do when you're 16 in the UK, maybe there are here too. And by the time I was reaching those exams, the school said, there is literally no point you taking a physics or chemistry or biology exam because you're just going to fail them. So I was in some respects sort of excluded from science partly by the school but I think I also have to say by myself you know I didn't think I was capable of understanding that stuff and you know I was a bored student I guess so that had something to do with it and then in my 20s my early 20s I came across sort of odd little sort of facts or observations made by science and I remember the one that really switched me on was the idea that time was linked to velocity and I thought Like, how can that be? So I started reading about it. What I actually did was I got a school textbook which related to physics. It was about atoms, and it was really aimed at kind of 11- and 12-year-olds. And I read it. It was a really simple book with a lot of pictures, and at the end of it, I had a sort of working knowledge of what an atom was, and then I just carried on. And I've never stopped. I, I read and watch more about science than anything else by far. Well, I think that's what we like to do at STEM Read is we find that spark. You know, Mm. for you, it was that time and velocity. Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, if someone had said that to me when I was younger, I think I'd have found that interesting. Mm -hmm. But instead, it was all about volumes and water displacement and stuff like that. So I, I just... I just had no way in. Right, yeah, I think in physics, like, it's a a ball rolling down an inclined plane. 
Yeah. But where's the spark? Where's the story? So I love that you put stories into that as you communicate fiction, technology, and science through the stories that you tell. So how did how did that being a board student who had this sudden interest in technology lead you to where you are? I think it's because science which has some really kind of attractive aspects about it I mean there's lots of wonderful things about it it's you know it's it's trying to understand the world and I always like the thing in science that someone can have a theory that they work on for 20 years and then it gets disproved and instead of rejecting the new information they say okay right I guess I was wrong and then move on (laughs) to something else but the thing that I like is that some very interesting and very profound philosophical questions and philosophical states arise directly from science and what that ends up meaning for me is that science is actually incredibly lyrical and poetic and meaningful and also beautiful and I think often the presentation of science is that it's dry and arrogant and acts as if it contains all the answers whereas scientists in my experience are the quickest people to say that they don't know about something and it's very hard actually getting scientists to say I know this to be true because they always have a caveat of what might be discovered in 10 years or five years so it's actually about the philosophy and the poetry that flows from science that I I get most affected by. And you've said that your ideas, your films, your books, they come from a thesis. Yeah. So do you want to describe that process? How, do you, how did your creative process work? Well, it's always the same, actually, which is that I get fascinated in a subject and I get fixated on the subject. In the case of the project that I've just done, Devs, it was fundamentally it was about quantum mechanics and trying to understand aspects of quantum mechanics as a layperson, which is what I am, obviously. And I'm not doing that thinking there's a story at the end of it. I'm just interested in it for my own reasons. And then sometimes what happens is like a little key turns in my head. And I think, oh, I I understand that principle, obviously at the limit of my education and intellectual ability, which is far behind the people that are actually doing this work. But I'm able to understand something. And at that moment, for whatever reason, I guess because it's my job, that suddenly then mutates into a story. So the story comes right at the end of the process, not halfway through or at the beginning. In all of your work, there's this interesting juxtaposition between nature and technology and man-made things, especially, I think, in the architecture in nature. Why does that come up again and again? Well, I think it's because we exist in a state where all of these things coexist. It would be odd to remove one of them, in a way. Everything about us is juxtapositions. That's the nature of our existence. And so I suppose I just try to reflect that in the stories. As much as possible, even though I'm often working in science fiction, I try to make the science fiction directly about actual life. And, you know, I guess then the flights of fancy are maybe entertaining but often because it's just a good way of throwing a light on something. What do you see as your role as a storyteller with science fiction? I know some of your work is more cautionary tales, some of it is an exploration of where technology could go. At the point I became very interested in science I also became aware that say at the time of Newton if you were someone who wanted to educate themselves as much as possible about Newton, you'd have a reasonable chance of of understanding the things he was trying to say. I mean, supernaturally intelligent person, but still 
you might be able to get up to speed broadly with it, maybe with 80%, just to chuck a percentage at it. That's not true anymore. Lots of areas of science, I could devote the rest of my life all day, every day, to trying to get up to speed with the people who are working in that area, and I would have literally no chance. The problem with that is that there are real-world implications, philosophical and therefore moral implications, to a lot of this science. And so in some respects, I sort of see myself as being like someone in the position of most of us who's trying to hold on to the balloon as it floats away because I don't think it's good for the balloon to float too far away. I don't think it's good for the people who are in possession of acute knowledge about the nature of the universe or quantum physics to end up speaking a language that's completely different from the rest of us. So I, I try to be one of the number of people who are hoping to bridge that gap. And do you see science fiction then as something that is infusing an optimism for the future or well, could well, bring it, about? It, it may or may not. It would depend on the area of science. If you wanted to talk too much about entropy, you'd find there wasn't a lot of optimism that came out the other end, mm -hmm. ultimately, because mm -hmm. of heat death and the end of everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are other areas of science where it enriches our existence partly just simply by virtue of being able to explain some aspects of our existence. So it's on a case-by-case -case basis. I wouldn't sort of make anything blanket about it. But even in the existential areas, there's still beauty to be found in them. So it's all worth exploring. So what are you looking at next? Are there some ideas, some theses that are rolling around in your head? Yeah, there is at the moment, which is to do with subjective and objective states and the extent to which objective states exist or do they exist at all. And the connection between science and that would be the way in which science can demonstrate, literally demonstrate, that our optic nerves and our brains are not giving us a precise account of what we're seeing, rather they're giving our, their best guess about what they're seeing. And there's an imaginative process, even in an act of straightforward observation. And how that sense of objectivity, but actual subjectivity, then extends to our behavior. And that's awesome, amazing. <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit. And you've said in other interviews that you tend to think of yourself as a writer and you embrace a chaotic type of atmosphere in filmmaking. No. Uh, no? It's not <laughs> chaotic, that, no. Okay, like um, that it's much more collaborative. It's collaborative, yeah. The word I'd use actually is anarchy, which sounds like it's chaotic, but it's not. Or it depends on the kind of anarchy you're talking about. There's a sort of nihilistic anarchy of sort of smash everything up, which is a kind of anarchy I kind of like in some respects. But there's another form which is more about a collective and the anarchy is to do with removing hierarchy systems and having a group of people who work together because they want to work together and they all have something to contribute. And it's to do with the dismantling of pyramid structures. So that's not actually chaotic, but it is, according to one definition, anarchic. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting process that you have. Do you have advice for, maybe even for your younger self or for students who might be in that position where they haven't found that thing that clicks with them yet? I think that most good things derive from curiosity. And, and I think it would be to be curious and to be open-minded and not, not feel too sure too quickly 
that you understand what's happening. The thing I was saying before about the way scientists will abandon idea an idea in the face of contradictory evidence, that is exactly the opposite of what people broadly do. There's lots of people one could point to right now in a political sphere who are being given very, very clear contradictory evidence to the things that they're saying, and their response to that is to ignore it. And that is not actually just the reserve of politics. That happens in belief systems constantly. In fact, it's the typical state of belief systems. Curiosity is in opposition to that. The starting point of curiosity is to say, I don't know and what might be true. And I feel like that's a good way to be as much as possible. Excellent. Well, I know that we don't have a lot of time before you have to move on, but thank you so much. I'm really excited about Devs. I saw the first episode and can't wait to see where it's going. I'm well, that's really intriguing. kind. I, I, I hope you like it. And for what it's worth, according to the kinds of questions you've been asking and, and the subject matter of your podcast, theoretically, it should be up your street. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Thanks so right, much. Cheers. <laughs> thank you. You just heard my interview with Alex Garland. Up next, I'll talk to physicist Rebecca C. Thompson. What I love about Alex Garland is that all of his work flows from his own curiosity about science and technology. His questions become obsessions and then become art. The first few episodes of Devs left me with several pressing questions about quantum mechanics, quantum computing, and the nature of reality. I knew I needed to learn more. I scanned my STEM read bookshelf and found Ruth Spiro's Baby Loves Quantum Physics. It's all about Schrodinger's cat and the subjective nature of existence. Babies love that stuff. And don't worry, the cat is either awake or asleep in Ruth's book. It's an adorable book, and after I read it, I brought it home to my husband and said, read this and then watch episode two of Devs again. It will blow your mind. But I still had questions. I needed an honest-to-goodness physicist. So I called Rebecca C. Thompson. Becky is a physicist by training. She earned her PhD at the University of Texas at Austin and then took a pivot in her career. Now she is making physics accessible for anybody. She is the author of the Spectra Comics, and her newest book is Fire, Ice, and Physics, The Science of Game of Thrones. Becky is also the head of the Office of Education and Public Outreach at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. She sees herself as an interpreter, taking complicated ideas such as quantum mechanics and trying to interpret them in a way that people can understand. I feel like I need to watch devs with a physicist on the couch with me. So this is the next best thing. Here's my interview with Rebecca C. Thompson. Just in general, from what I know about quantum mechanics and quantum physics, a lot of it comes from Ant-Man. Uh, so, <laughs> so what is quantum mechanics? So what we are used to in physics, balls on hills, things rolling, things sliding, um, that's considered classical mechanics, classical physics. And that's stuff that we can see and touch and understand how we interact with. Anything big enough for us to see is going to be classical. What's interesting is when things get really, really small, they behave what seems like differently. So if I'm looking at electrons or protons or atoms, the way they interact is different than what I would expect having looked at the world around me. If you look at an atom, quantum mechanics describes how the electrons and protons and neutrons behave in that atom, how those small things interact. 
kind of the hallmarks of quantum mechanics, the first thing is what gave it its name. Things are quantized, meaning in classical mechanics, so in the world you can see, you can run, let's say, at any speed or have any amount of energy. Just pick a number, you can have that much energy or, you know, that much momentum. But in quantum mechanics, those ideas are quantized. So the electrons, say, in a hydrogen atom, they can only have certain amounts of energy, certain quanta of energy. And this seems really counterintuitive the first time you look at it. You think that doesn't make any sense. But it's something that's been shown over and over again, that when things get really small, you end up being able to see that they're quantized. You also have this idea of wave-particle duality. Things act like both waves and particles. And that's something that you really only see when you get really, really, really small. What I find interesting is that all of those ideas of quantum mechanics are true in really big world. It's just everything is too big to see it. So really, the entire world runs on quantum mechanics. It's just by the time we can experience it and the time we can see it, all of those things that make us feel uncomfortable, like quantization and wave functions and energy levels, we can't experience that anymore because it's, things are so big, we can't see it. So we really only experience this quantum world when things are really, really tiny, like an Ant-Man. <laughs> it all goes back to Ant-Man. It does. <laughs> um, so then how is quantum computing different? So quantum computing ends up using the properties of these really, really tiny things instead of the normal types of calculations where you've got one calculation at a time. It can do a bunch at once. And so you end up being able to speed up how you can calculate things. And so a quantum computer can do in an absolute fraction of the time what a classical computer, what a big computer that we're used to can do. It actually uses the properties of quantum mechanics and uses the properties of these very tiny things to be able to successfully do a number of calculations. They can really speed up our computing power. Does quantum computing exist now? Are people using it now? People are in the process of making it. So we've got a group here at Fermilab that's working on it. You know, Google's working on it. Everybody's trying to make the best use of this idea of quantum computing that they have. So um, people are developing algorithms to work. So people are really pushing forward the idea of being able to use quantum computing to do the types of calculations that we do now in classical computing. When I was yeah. on a tour of Argonne's supercomputers, one thing that they said was, the problem with quantum computing is that when we get those particles down to a certain level of tininess that we can no longer predict what they're going to do because they could exist in two different states. Was that what you were talking about with wave particle duality or is that something else happening? That is kind of the same idea. When things get really, really small, and this is where the Schrodinger's cat piece comes in. <laughs> So Schrodinger's cat, the idea is that if you have a cat in a box and it's either alive or dead and you don't know, according to quantum mechanics, it is both alive and dead at the same time until you look at it. And then when you look at it, it ends up being one or the other. And that's the thing with quantum computing is that you have a bunch of different potential states. And you, what you want to do is make sure that you're able to hold on to that successful amount of information. And as soon as you look at it, you end up collapsing it to one state or another. Well, I read an article about quantum computing and the end of cybersecurity as we know it, that the amount of qubits that can be calculated by quantum computing, basically all of our cybersecurity technology will be obsolete. This is true. 
But the thing that you need to keep in mind is just like, I don't know, you've read Harry Potter, right? Mm -hmm. There's that one scene where the new Minister of Magic, it's in book six, I believe. He walks into the Prime Minister of England to say, hey, by the way, giant wizarding war, really bad guy on the loose. And the Prime Minister says, but I don't understand. Can't you guys stop it? You guys have magic. And Fudge responds with, well, you do understand the other side has magic, too. (laughs) And I feel like in a a number of cases that, yes, of course, a quantum computer is going to be able to overpower your classical computer, but the other side has magic, too. Mm -hmm. it's, It's not the end. It's just different. Sort of like, I mean, it's the same thing, like texting is the end of phone conversations. It's not really, it's just different. Absolutely. So the fact that you brought up Harry Potter to help explain this to me is awesome because it leads into my next question. How do you see science fiction and uh, science fact working together? I've only watched the first episode of Devs, so I'm sorry um, if this is different by the second episode. But the thing that I really liked about the sci-fi aspect of it was exploring the idea of determinism and kind of that implication that if we had a quantum computer, we could calculate how everything's going to happen. And to me, this was a moment of, is that really true? Like, if I had all the computing power in the universe, could I actually calculate what everybody was going to do? And I don't think it's correct, but I can't say that specifically. It's never been pondered in the way that it's been proposed by this show. And to me, that's interesting because you have problems like a very, the very classical three-body problem where you can't solve that with an equation. It could only be solved once we had a computer. So nobody could predict the way three planets would move with each other until we had a computer. And then we could do a numerical solution and we could predict it. But how far can we push that? So can the idea of a quantum computer mean that we can determine where every particle in the universe is going to go? And I don't know the answer to that because no one's asked the question and no one's asked what problems are we not solving because we, we just immediately imply we're never going to have the ability to solve that. We'll never have the computing power to solve it. So I like the idea that This is really exploring the ethical questions and and the implications in the rest of physics. The one thing this this show had me kind of researching that I've just I've never asked myself is what problems can we solve numerically with with numbers with computing that we could never solve by hand before? And is that a thing a quantum computer could do in our lifetime? What are the computing speeds and what computing speeds would we need? To me, that's fascinating. The other thing that I really liked that it brought up was the idea that the algorithms that are used to tell our normal computer to you know, code, the things that we talk about with coding and how to code and algorithms, it, what we use on a regular computer is not the same as what we would use on a quantum computer because the way a quantum computer processes information is fundamentally different. And I like the fact that it brought up this idea of the importance of algorithms and the fact that an algorithm is, you know, a key piece in how we use these computers of the future. And those conversations and those, the look at those type of things, I've never seen anyone else explore that in fiction before. And I think it's one that maybe even the conversations I've seen in science aren't about those things. And I think that's a conversation that we would enjoy having. So science fiction does have that ability to move the conversation in a direction that science might not have thought to go yet. I think propose questions that weren't necessarily thought of as things to answer. Also, I think 
the conversation about algorithms for quantum computers versus algorithms for classical computers is one everybody's having. We will have quantum computers. You know, we, we are using that. Knowing how to program that is important. Knowing how to interact with a quantum computer, that that is the next step. Everybody needs to learn how to do that. But this is kind of the first time that I've seen on TV, and maybe I just don't watch enough TV, a discussion showing people outside of science, outside of computing, the importance of algorithms. And that, to me, is fascinating. The fact that a lot of computing power is governed by how good you are at telling the computer what to do. So it isn't necessarily only that we have this new idea of a quantum computer and this new idea of how to compute information and the, the actual hardware of how to do that. It's that we need to know the language to tell it what to do successfully. So the difference in a, a good algorithm you know, can be factors of 10, factors of 100 faster computing. And so knowing not just how to create a really great quantum computer, knowing how to create an algorithm to run it is also a conversation that you know everybody's working on that everybody's working on how to have that create the algorithms to successfully run these new quantum computers and i don't think that's talked about enough in pop culture it's a really good show i mean i i really enjoyed it yeah it's i'm doing a lot of research because of it for sure yeah <laughs> it was it was honestly and just as a scientist the piece that got me is kind of not the quantum mechanics piece it, you know quantum computing all of that we do that. Everybody's kind of used to sci-fi. If you don't know what it is, let's just throw, let's call it quantum mechanics and we're done. And quantum mechanics does weird stuff. So if we don't understand it, we're going to call that and it's done. Um, but the piece to me that I thought was a really interesting exploration that I'd never seen discussed or explored before was the idea of determinism. And what does it, what does determinism mean? And that to me was the piece that sent me as a scientist wondering, like, well, is that true? If, if I did have infinite computing power, could I figure out where everything was going? And that was the key kind of question that as a scientist, I was fascinated by. Is that true? Is the universe determined? Is that already a thing? And if so, could we figure it out? And that is not a question I've really seen explored from a science perspective. I've seen it explored from a philosophical perspective. I mean, The Good Place explored it beautifully, both theologically and philosophically. But this idea of assuming that we have infinite computing power and then using that to determine everything that's going to happen, I don't know if that's possible. And I'm really curious. You just heard my interview with author and physicist Rebecca C. Thompson. I love talking to Becky because she can quote the laws of physics and Harry Potter in the same breath. She's always fun to be with, and she's great at translating very complex concepts into digestible chunks. Check out her Spectra comics and read her newest book, Fire, Ice, and Physics, The Science of Game of Thrones, to get information on everything from the biology of beheadings to the genetics of incest. There's also a great chapter called White Walkers, Zombies, Parasites, and Statistics, which is sure to please all of you science and horror nerds in the audience. Both of my guests today let curiosity lead them. They ask questions, search for answers, and work to share what they've learned with others through fascinating movies, insightful books, and creative programs. They are my favorite kind of people because they spark curiosity and get other people excited about learning. Read their work, watch devs, fill your heads with questions, and then go find answers. 
Thanks to our guests, Alex Garland and Rebecca C. Thompson. And thanks to FX and C2E2 for making our interview with Alex possible. You can find information on today's show and our experts in our show notes. If you're like me and you love the idea of science and fiction feeding off each other, join us this June at NIU's Future Telling Conference, where STEM experts and science fiction authors will meet to share the latest in bleeding-edge research and innovative storytelling. Rebecca C. Thompson is one of our keynotes along with Ken Liu, M.T. Anderson, and other great writers and thinkers. If you're a writer who wants to science up your fiction, or a scientist who wants to collaborate with writers, or an educator looking for fresh ideas on STEM and writing, join us at NIU June 24th through 26, 2020. Learn more about our events at stemread.com. The STEM Read podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.